Elevating Humanity would like to extend a special thanks to this episode's guests, Tom Gordon and Ray Silva, for the use of the University Arts Building's recording studio and equipment in the production of this episode. Any noticeable jump in quality is all thanks to that, and the existence of this podcast in the first place would not be possible without their teaching. Hello, and welcome to Elevating Humanity, a podcast of the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Nevada, Reno, dedicated to sharing the current research and history of our esteemed faculty within the College of Liberal Arts. My name is Isaac Goyette, and I'll be your host. You can find additional episodes of this podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts. For today's guests, we have Tom Gordon and Ray Silva. Tom Gordon is the recording arts instructor here at the University of Nevada, Reno, and the head engineer of Imirage Sound Labs here in Reno, Nevada. Ray Silva is the music technology operations supervisor here at the University of Nevada, Reno. Outside of the university, both are multi-platinum recording engineers, meaning they have worked on recordings with sales numbers in the millions in rap, R&B, hip-hop, rock, and more. Gentlemen, how are we doing today? Groovy. I am well, thank you. Glad to hear that. So moving on into our first question here, if you could give us a roadmap of your careers, how did you come into this field, and how long have you been involved with it? I am born and raised in Reno, Nevada, and inherited a reel-to-reel tape machine from my dad who worked at Harrah's in the showroom for 41 years, brought home a reel-to-reel tape machine, and I was just enamored with the fact that sound was being stuck on this tape, and I'd make compilation recordings of my vinyl and trying to squeeze all four sides onto one tape so I wouldn't have to flip the record over. And I thought this was amazing. Uh, And went to recording school at the University of Southern California, where I ironically met Ray. And when I graduated there in 91, I came back here to Reno, where there was a studio called Granny's House, which was a a big Victorian home on the corner of Mount Rose and Plumas, which was a world-renowned recording studio at the time, and miraculously landed a gig there. I was staff engineer for five years, head engineer for two years, left in uh, 98, started my own production company called Inspired Amateur Productions, because there's nothing more dangerous than the Inspired Amateur. (laughs) And uh, I've been operating out of a studio in Sparks called Mirage Sound Lab for the last basically 20 years, and have been doing freelance work for Whitesnake, at their studio here in town, uh, Mike Love of the Beach Boys up in Lake Tahoe and Doug Clifford of Creedence Clearwater. My national acts between these rooms also include Dr. Dre, Willie Nelson, Will Haggard, Collective Soul, Boys to Men, Ozzy, Michael Martin Murphy. And my first professional gig out of school was the Millie Vanilli comeback album where they actually sang. <laughs> and uh, stay tuned for the new documentary coming out next year I just got interviewed for. Uh, oh, very cool. Yeah. Uh, do we have a title on that yet? I uh, no, 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 no working title yet. But. Alrighty, we'll have to keep an eye out for that then. Yeah. Uh, over to Ray then. Same question. Uh, how'd you get involved in this industry? I was born and raised in a Chicago suburb, northwest Indiana, called Hammond. And uh, like Tom, I had fascinations with tape recorders since I was a kid. Uh, when I was 16, I became a professional musician and played in a band. And we had occasion to go to a recording studio to record a song. So I recorded a song that I wrote when I was 17 years old. Seeing a recording studio just blew my mind. It married two things that I love, music and science. So I call it the science of rock and roll. I moved to Los Angeles to seek my fortune, started at USC in 1984. And after two years, they wanted you to declare a major. I said, how dare you? So I left to go find myself. When I was nowhere to be found, I returned. And that's where (laughs) I met Tom in 1989. So Tom and I studied together. Upon leaving USC, uh, I was planted at a recording studio called Alumba in Hollywood. I was really lucky. It was a really terrific studio. And having bounced between that and another studio called Air LA, where I was eventually chief engineer, I started mixing records. And 
was lucky enough to get a record producer named Chucky Booker, who wrote a great song. First thing I ever mixed went to number four oh, in wow. the R&B charts. And it wasn't that I was a great mixer. It was just that I didn't screw it up. <laughs> so I worked in the recording industry for a few years. And uh, it's a very difficult thing if you're not union to get paid. You have to chase people around town. It's just notorious. Mm. And so I had connections. I did some technical work at Paramount Pictures and was eventually hired there to work supporting sitcoms. So these are film sitcoms. I worked there for a few years. I did some work on Frasier, did some work on Dharma and Greg, and eventually started mixing sitcoms. So I mixed four seasons of Girlfriends, and I uh, mixed uh, sitcoms on other sound stages at Warner Brothers, at Fox, and so forth. So, And then uh, the sitcoms went away, dried up. I was in San Diego for a year, and I did some rich media for the internet, and eventually an opportunity came up here in Reno, and I loved Reno since I started visiting, thanks to Tom. Found myself at the university, and the first few years was working at the Knowledge Center, where I helped pioneer high-definition multi-camera coverage of commencement for the first time in the university, and they're still doing it. Then this university art building was uh, built, and I was part of the building committee to try to make things work right. They offered me a job, and now I'm sitting in front of you. Very nice. So over the course of your careers, what would you say have, has been the most rewarding thing thus far? Let's start with Ray on this one. So on music or TV or which uh, one? Whichever you prefer, honestly. If you want to do both, you're more than welcome to. Hey, well, I'll tell you, um, one of the things that you know I didn't really think about, but when it happened, just kind of blew my mind. Another classmate of ours, a gentleman named Scott Cowan, who Tom and I and Scott were in a band. I was the shortest guy, and I'm 6'2", mm -hmm. called Cavortin We Beasties. He got married. We flew to Anchorage. And while I was there, I heard a song that I worked on oh, wow. for the first time. It's a very strange thing because obviously context is everything and things are every day. And then all of a sudden, wow, there's that Richard Marks song that I worked on. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's disembodying. It's kind of strange. And so just thinking that I had a hand in that was really amazing. Oh, absolutely. And Tom, what, the question again was, uh, what would you say has been the most rewarding thing thus far in your career? Rewarding? Probably a charity record that I did. I actually did some, uh, some good for the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. We did a, a big project where I called in every favor I had and got Christmas songs from White Snake, Yes, Collective Soul, Weezer, all these things. And we spent a year putting this thing together and were able to release it as a charity signal, about, a char charity album about 10 years ago. That when that was actually going towards research to help sick kids get better, that was, that was pretty great. Also, seeing how this, you know, because I started teaching independently in 2004 and then started teaching here in 2014 and seeing where we started at the studio at UNR in the, in the Church Fine Arts building, which was, you know, basically a closet in mm -hmm. between two large rehearsal spaces and putting, I had been talking to people about this new building for 15 years, actually. Oh. I was first asked about it in 2001 and actually sitting in the room now and, and seeing the, the fruit of the efforts is pretty amazing. So... With the way you said that, was the new building kind of your idea, or was it presented to you, and then you then you started brainstorming on oh, it? Oh, it was presented to us. There's this amazing man named Larry Inkstrom who has been spearheading this thing the, since day one. I, I I think they should just call it the Inkstrom School of the Arts because <laughs> he's the guy who made this building happen, and he he held he held off retiring three times to make sure he was here when it was done. Fair enough. 
Speaking of the recording arts program, could you describe the current state of it at the moment? What are the recording arts and engineering program's current strengths and weaknesses? And where do you think it can improve? What do you think it does well? So the current state is we have four classes and an internship that we offer. Mm -hmm. There's MUS 233, which is the introduction recording class, which is kind of the introduction to recording technology history, introduction to how the ear works, acoustics, analog versus digital, mic design techniques. And then it branches out to 234, which is an introduction to nonlinear recording, Pro Tools, and recording techniques. And then the third class after that was 286, which is advanced recording, which was based around the need for classical recording here at a, at a school like ours, and music industry. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of split in half. And then this year, we were able to roll out Ray's new class for the first time, MUS 320, the large console class, learning the underworkings of a SSL large frame console. Ray, would you like to go into that class a little bit more? So let me just put a fine point on the whole program, because that course. was your original question. So Tom and I have designed or imagined a program moving forward mm -hmm. that is very much based on what Tom and I studied at USC. So it had fundamentals like electrical engineering, acoustics, digital, and so forth. We'd like to bring that here with updates. Tom and I, 30 years ago, when we were in college, we learned about analog tape machines, and mm -hmm. we just don't really see them around anymore. So there's right. that. Right now, where we are is we're just looking for funding. We're looking for money. We're all recovering from this global pandemic. It's still taking a financial toll on us. But hopefully when we get funding, it's a matter of hiring faculty because there's only Tom and I and two people can't teach a whole program. Mm -hmm. So in terms of where we're headed, I think we're pointed in the right direction. We've already reached out to some leadership at UNR and they are supporting us. And as soon as we can find some resources to be able to hire on faculty, then we can develop the program a little more fully. Of course. What other classes would you two like to see? What sort of concepts have you come up with for new classes in the future? Well, I'll name them right off right now. So as Tom said, we have two entry-level recording classes, 233 and 234. He also teaches 286, which is like a concert recording class, a little more about remote recording and editing, those sorts of things. I teach Music 320, which is large console recording, which is the ins and outs of our beautiful SSL console. Moving forward, we would like to see students have exposures to electrical engineering. So they offer a class here called Circuits One. Mm -hmm. But like I like to say, let's have it without the squiggly math. Calculus tends to be kind of a, a hurdle. So it's enough that our students can read music. Maybe calculus is just a bridge too far. So we would want electrical engineering, and then we'd like digital audio. So that's a very specific part of digital, not digital controls. We're talking about quantizing and sampling audio. Mm -hmm. uh, acoustics, we'd want something that's regarding the phenomenon acoustics that we deal with all the time, echo, reverb, RT60s, those sorts of things. And then probably designing new classes, advanced mixing techniques. I would like to do a couple of studio theory classes where we do everything from, you know, measure voltages to solder cable to running new circuits that sort of thing. We would like to have a program head in a direction that is mindful of our training from 30 years ago, but mindful of it being the here and now. Mm -hmm. And with Tom and I having a combined 60 years experience in pro audio, we believe we can bring a perspective that is a very authentic experience for students here. Yeah. The other thing is right now, everything that we are covering that we might be spending two or three days on was an entire semester of. 
right. at USC. So trying to flesh the things out more detailed. So in the case of 286, you know, make that two classes, one where one's all the classical and mastering, and then a separate music industry class. And then 234 is half mixing, half recording, make those two separate classes and having something that gets deeper on the mixing, another one gets deeper on the, the recording. I, down the road, wouldn't, I would love to see if there's a way we can integrate with film students and, and try to do audio post-production for film and television as a class and maybe even you know, sound design for gaming, you know, there, mm. you know, stuff like that. That's where the gigs are. So, you know, there, there's a lot of ideas of, that we could throw out there, but, you know, we got to see, A, what faculty can teach it and who's paying their, their salary. <laughs> right. A lot of this has been, let's, let's get out there and start training students ahead of building a program and see how much we can cram into your heads as quickly as possible. You are a student who took Music 224 at the time was Music Recording Science. Yep. And so to Tom's point about being microcosms, we had three weeks on digital. Tom and I took a semester. Three weeks on acoustics. Tom and I took a semester. Three weeks on electrical engineering. Tom and I took two semesters. So I tried in the recording science class to make it a microcosm of just the things that were super relevant and would at least give students a perspective on the science and technology behind music recording. Gotcha. So a lot of expansion is, is needed is just the general sum of that. But on the flip side of that, uh, boiling it down even further, if you could boil down everything that you want to instill in your students to maybe just one or two concepts, what would that be? What do you feel students need to be successful in the music industry today? So to, to, to be out there in, in the working world after, after a program like this is no one likes working with jerks. You know, right. don't, don't be a jerk um, or, or a more colorful expletive that I can't say here. Um, <laughs> yeah, because a lot of people who have bad attitudes may get a job once mm -hmm. and they will not get the call back. And that, that will be a problem and they won't be referred to or recommended by other folks. It's, this gig is all about word of mouth. So people are like, you know, I'm never gonna work with that guy again or that gal again because she was difficult or he was difficult to work with. You might as well start another career because yeah, this is a people gig. Absolutely. And so having the technical know-how plus the human interaction chops is, is massive. And right? Tom took the best one. Really, it's that one about being cool to work with. Uh, the saying goes, people like to work with who they like to work with. And it doesn't matter if your chops are razor sharp. If people don't want to hang out with you for a couple of weeks on a tour bus, you're just really, it's really not going to happen for you. Mm. So that aside, I would say that the two things that I would like to see students have, and this is the first thing students get really sick of me saying this, attention to detail. It is so important, attention to detail, to make sure that you are dotting I's, crossing T's, because no one wants... No one wants to have a project half-assed. They want something where someone who's working on it is dedicated to the art, dedicated to making it a really, really terrific work that would fully represent the vision of the artists. So there's, there's that element of it. And then the other one, I would love to see students really be voracious in their interest in technology and techniques just so that they kind of live and breathe it. It shouldn't be a job. It should be a vocation. It should be a calling. The most successful people, I believe, in these kinds of industries are the ones who really give their heart and soul. Mm. Give was, it all you got. I was once asked, well, what could I do to wake up excited about going to work every day? And the answer was being musically creative. So, you know, I found something that gave me 
inspiration and the, hence the, the name of my company inspired amateur productions because it's mm -hmm. you know that's that kind of fire that gets people going and in terms of students i really like it when i see students who care enough to follow through for the attention to detail that ray was talking about and and going and taking that extra effort in because this is not a gig you can phone in mm -hmm. you have to you gotta dot the i's cross the t's and give it a presentation that will wow folks so just like oh well yeah here's my paper it's like, you know, I'm not looking for C work. I, I, a work is what's going to get you a gig. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, that's important. You know, you just can't be lackluster about this. One of the reasons that Tom and I gravitated towards each other is because we both have this, you know, at least 30 years ago and to some extent still now, we really wanted to get in there and, and do work. We wanted to get in there and record. So if someone says there's free studio time, we would have climbed over each other to get to that studio time. Mm -hmm. yeah. And fast forward to today, only today I learned that uh, students in my class decided on their own to get together to huddle, book the studio, and drill on some of the things I've taught them ab about the mixing console. I didn't suggest that anyone do that. I didn't say, why don't you guys form little parties and see if, if you can get together, do a little study group. But when that unfolded organically, wow, that's like the greatest thing. That's now demonstrating to me that there are people who really care about the craft, who really want to immerse themselves and learn as much as they possibly can. So do you feel, given those concepts, do you feel that you're uh, successful in instilling that in, into your students? Uh, and what do you feel would help you more successfully do so? Well, I always try to lead by example. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I'm the most excited person to be here, actually, when, when it comes <laughs> to my classes. And I, and I try to make it engaging, you know. What other teacher has stories about Ozzy Osbourne to, to put in their lecture notes, you know. That, so it's like, okay, if, if, you, if you find my classes unengaging, I'm not sure what else I can do <laughs> unless <laughs> you just hate Ozzy Osbourne. But, uh, you know, might not be your cup of tea. Uh, or, or, and, and in stupid humor, all these things. That, but it doesn't re resonate with everyone, does it? You know, not everyone gets it. And you can't please everybody. Mm -hmm. And that's fine. So, you know, I would say I have, based on my, my, my faculty reports at the end of each semester, I'm, I'm reaching a lot of folks. And I get, I get very good feedback saying, you know, this is, the, this is my favorite class. I've learned so much. And, you know, the fact that I make everyone write so many notes uh, is, is not so much that I expect everyone to memorize everything, but they're now writing the handbook for their career. Mm. You know, this is going to, they're, they're going to take that notebook and be able to reference stuff that they learned one word at a time rather than having to go find it on Google. And I don't drop that hat at the time, but there are a lot of people who come back to me years later and go, ah, I see what you did there. <laughs> ah, crafty. Uh so a lot of people who are in the class going, my hand's about to fall off. This is lame. I'm going to drop the class. Okay, if it's not resonating with you, that I, then yes, go find what resonates with you. Mm -hmm. I'll, I'll be sad you're gone, but I'll be happy that you're finding something that resonates with you, that, that, something that wakes you up excited about going to work each day. So trying to force a student to care, I don't know how that's done, actually. I, I, so I, I don't know what I could change. Obviously, I've gotten feedback over the years from students and other faculty members of you know things here and there to, to tweak. But you know, I actually would wouldn't mind more impact and feedback on how to to get more retention. But it's also a weeding process, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, I'm so 30 years of doing this professionally. I've never been married. Don't have a family. I work 80, 90 hour weeks for 30 years. This is not for everyone, of course. And someone who's not willing to put that time of commitment in because it's not a job it's a lifestyle mm -hmm. it can be a blast but you know i've been getting four to five hours of sleep 
a, a night for the last five nights, I'm, I'm ready to fall over right now. I wouldn't trade it. And not everyone is willing to do that. And if this is the time to figure that out and they don't want to get into it, this is a perfect time to figure that out. Mm -hmm. And Rick, do you feel you're successful in instilling that attention to detail? Well, you see, we had it rough. I'm sorry. <laughs> that, that was an insult. That was a joke. That was an insult. So toss your question again. What was it again? Uh, do you feel that you are successful in instilling that attention to detail that you like to see in your students? So it should be noted that primarily my responsibilities aren't academic. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm administrative faculty. I'm allowed to teach a class. So right now for me, in terms of showing success, if this building is still in one piece and all the audio works, then I can take some credit for that. But if we talk about the student interactions, I will say it's a little more subtle. Mm -hmm. I'll say that when I start having conversations with students, and they start adopting the language and start using the terminology that they've learned in this context with authority and properly using it, then I can pick up on the fact that they are getting it, that they are finally understanding what's going on. This stuff is not trivial. It's difficult to do. Of course. Tom and I, of course, we've been playing with you know tape recorders since we're single-digit ages, and so it kind of comes easy to us. Others are look at this technology and go, uh, can I go practice my instrument because this stuff is scary. <laughs> when a student can relay in a conversation with me that they have understood and you know I can pick up on it I can I can sense this for example every every Tuesday first thing we do is a listening and what I have been doing all these weeks and you've been part of this is honing the language that students use when they're describing recordings mm -hmm. I have to steer them away from talking about compositions arrangements performances and start talking more about the technical aspects of it frequency response dynamic range the coin of the realm in terms of vocabulary. And when they start speaking to me and representing their ideas and thoughts and using this language and it's crafted from a position where they're getting the understanding, that is really satisfying. That is when I think the student has really picked up on what we're saying. And I, I guess so kind of, because I think I fell off topic of your question, Isaac. Sorry about that. Oh, no problem. Uh, um, so, so where I, I see evidence of it, of it sticking, I guess is a good way to call it here, is in doing these mix assignments, there's a, a mix assignment that the intermediate students have to do where they have to mix the same song multiple times over the course of a semester. And you can tell quite often that there's some people who have more chops coming in than others, that they've been doing it either as a hobbyist for years or whatever. And, and some of them are just like, don't. They're pushing faders up and they're like, I have no idea what I'm doing. And their first mix might be a, a little uh, you know, out of balance. And when I see the transition, of someone who had a not great mix to one that lands and it sounds like something that someone would pay for by the end of the semester, that's when it worked. What you don't want is the opposite, mm -hmm. is when students start off promising and they are misusing the equipment and they ruin the mix. And that's been, kind of been my litmus test. The ratio of people ruining their mixes has been steadily declining for the last <laughs> 10 years of me teaching it because I have gotten better at giving them good direction and good feedback on their mixes. And hopefully they can take that back and I'm like, okay, this is how you communicate with people in order to get the desired result. And that's something they need to learn here once they leave here. Mm -hmm. So throughout your careers, what has been uh, a large obstacle to yourself, perhaps a just significant example of uh, a challenge that you faced that really kind of defined your career to yourselves or taught you an important lesson moving forward? Let's start with Ray. Oh, boy. Thanks for tossing me such a softie. <laughs> um, 
Well, you know, I, I would say that in the course of my particular career, and if we compare mine with Tom's, Tom has been doing the same thing. At some point, you'll get it right. I'm kidding. Yeah. yeah. No, he's a, career, he's a career recording engineer. He's a craftsman. He still sets microphones, but when he sets them, he's coming with 30 years of experience and know-how. Mm. I kind of diverged into more of the technology stuff. Maybe it's because I don't have that great of an attention span. But I'll say in the recording industry... My career was short-lived. The last album that I worked on was an artist named Art Porter, who it was his last album because he went in on tour supporting the record that I, I mixed most of the songs in the thing. He tragically died in Thailand when a boat capsized, and so it's difficult for me to handle that. Mm -hmm. I had to reimagine myself in Los Angeles, and what I wound up doing was something that I also gravitate towards, which is technology. So I started doing technology integration, which got me into Paramount Pictures. The Arsenio Hall show had just wrapped, and we redid the sound booth in there, and that's how I got my foot in the door. So I reimagined myself, wound up in the television industry, right at the end of sitcoms, where sitcoms, you may remember, there was a time when you'd see Darman Gregg, Frasier, Seinfeld, Friends, sitcoms everywhere. And then all of a sudden, you see game shows and talent shows. So you see Big Brother, you see Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? So that changed. I had to reinvent myself again. After a short time in San Diego, I finally found myself here. The entire time, working with technology has been easy for me. It's one of these things that I, I feel I'm blessed at. Mm -hmm. And so my having to go up with each one of these changes has meant every time that I've reinvented myself. And I'm, I'm actually pretty okay with where things are right now. I feel that with 30 years of paying half attention, I've picked up some things and... Who knew that I could be useful at all in a building like this? I had no idea this building was happening. When I was told that I was on the building committee, it wasn't something like, would you like to serve on the building committee? It's like, well, Ray, and this is Dr. Engstrom, Larry Engstrom, who said this, you're on the building committee. I'm like, oh, I am? Okay. <laughs> and he didn't even work for this department yet. Yeah, I was still at the Knowledge Center. But, Tom is my witness, I've worked on a lot of recording studios. I've done a lot of technology integration. What I did at the Knowledge Center building up an inventory of the high-definition cameras and the sound equipment that we need for commencement. I love putting gadgets together. And so this was a, a no-brainer. I was honored to be part of this and to help try to steer this building in the right direction. And I think we got a lot of things right. So I don't know if I've answered your question, but it seems that oftentimes in, in a career, you may need to reinvent yourself. You may need, kind of need to reassess where you are. Mm. And knock on wood, I have been lucky. Every single time I've turned a corner, things have worked out. So I'm really happy here at UNR being able to now tell these really terrific stories that I have in recording studios to a new group of students who have never heard my jokes before and will laugh politely. <laughs> <laughs> and so, oh. re repeat the question for me, if you would be so kind. So if you could be any tree... <laughs> what tree would you be? A tall one. <laughs> well, you kind of already are. That's my that point. Criteria, or... Not much of a stretch. <laughs> uh, but the actual question was, uh, what would you consider be, to be a defining moment in your career, a challenge that you've faced and overcome and uh, kind of changed your perspective and taught you an important lesson? Going freelance. That was tough because it's leaving a comfort zone. And no one likes leaving their comfort zones. I was working at Granny's house that then became Sierra Sonic's recording mansion. And, you know, we'd worked on some huge acts at Granny's house that I listed earlier that were coming less and less because project studios were showing up undercutting big complexes like Granny's house and Abbey Road and the plant and all the big studios. And 
plus I, I kind of wanted to try it on my own, but boy, you know, now you're, you're starting from scratch in a small market, you know, that's, that's a scary, scary thing. So leaving, you know, panic attacks, the whole, the whole nine. And it took me a year of punting. Fortunately, I've scored a, a very short term front of house gig at the El Dorado, hmm. mixing the spirit of the dance show in the showroom, which is where I learned I hate doing live sound. <laughs> and uh, and in that time, I got reacquainted with Dr. Larry Davis, the owner of Imirage, which at the time was called Axtrax. And I recorded there when I was 15. Uh, with my high school rock band, and he remembered me, and he had heard about my reputation at Granny's. He said, "Well, if you think you can book the place, I'll put some money in giving it a facelift." And it took about a year to re redesign, and we opened January 2000 after a year under the new name. But you know, in '99, it was like, okay, I got this temporary gig at El Dorado for a while, and as soon as that's over, I got to make this brand new building work. Mm -hmm. this new studio work and hopefully I made enough friends at Granny's house where they'll take a chance on coming over to a new room and it, it eventually paid off. You have know, done over 250 albums out of there. Right on. That was scary though. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Absolutely. So I suppose my last question would be just looking at uh, the music and entertainment industries, television as well. What would you say is an interesting or even concerning trend that you have noticed and would like to see either expanded upon or possibly uh, moved away from. Uh, we'll start with Tom on that one. Well, we're all very concerned <laughs> about a few things. So I'm going to leave one for Ray for sure. Uh, I have a couple. One is uh, over the last 20 years, there's this annoying trend called the loudness war, mm. where in the final stage of making an album, it's called mastering. And so making an album is like making a cake. So when you first get everyone in a studio to record, that's like getting the ingredients together to make a cake in the kitchen. So all the, you put it all this together, all the ingredients in a bowl, and it's this goo that looks nothing like a cake. That's tracking. You know, you, you, you'll get the musicians in a studio and you put it all together and the balances are all off. It doesn't sound much like music at all. The second phase of making a cake is baking. That's mixing here so when we mix a record there's like baking a cake and now it looks like now it looks like a cake you know this looks like it's taking form mm -hmm. the final step of an album is called mastering which is putting the icing on the cake and it's a, a, a process where we make sure all the songs are the same volume from song to song and the the tones are consistent from song to song and we bring it up to a competitive volume where all their music is being released and over the last 20 years, that volume is getting louder and louder and louder and louder and louder, just so your song is the loudest song coming from the speakers. We have a, a running joke. In, in fact, I'm going to, spoiler alert for anyone who wants to take 233, <laughs> the two rules of pro audio. Uh, hopefully you remember these two <laughs> rules, Isaac. Yes. Rule number one. Up is louder. Rule number two. And louder is better. See, okay. there you go. Okay, You're now a professional sound <laughs> engineer. I need to write this down. Hang on <laughs> So... It's a, it's a joke. It's an absolute joke, even though it's on his license plate. Uh, the uh, Ray's, I was pointing at Ray. Uh, right. uh, it, it, it might as well be scripture, the way the industry is right now, about everything being loud. Mm -hmm. And in order to accomplish that kind of loudness without distorting, they use a device called a compressor that compresses the difference between the loudest part of the music and the softest part of the music. 
this nifty thing called dynamics that we're obliterating in order to get it loud. So there mm. is no difference between loud and soft. And we're stuck. You can't do it. You can't release an album without it now because it will sound too soft. And the people who are not hip to the problem just listen to this recording that actually has nice dynamic range and goes, what's wrong with your album? It sounds soft. It's like, well, actually, it's better. Just turn it up. It's like, well, I didn't have to turn up the Slipknot record. That was loud. <laughs> You're like, uh, so you can't compete against it. And so part of the part of the reason vinyl has come back so mm -hmm. strong is you can't master vinyl that loud. It'll actually make the needle pop out. Right. So they actually master vinyl at levels closer to what they were doing in the 80s with better frequency or dynamic response. So everyone's saying everything sounds so much better on vinyl right now isn't because it's a better format. It's actually spec-wise, kind of neck and neck. It's just mastered correctly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there's we seem to be stuck where we can't get out of this loudness war. That's a major issue, number one. The second one is with streaming. And Ray, I'm sure we'll elaborate on this quite a bit. The way people made a living doing this was, you know, they would get back in on the recording when it sold. And the scale has always been a little tweaked on that one. The people who make the money are the songwriters and the labels, basically. But if you're selling a record or a CD or even a dollar a download on Apple Music, it was you were getting a percentage of that. With streaming, that 12% that is now a twelfth of a percent. So a million streams equals 80 bucks if you're the drummer on a song. Mm. And no one can live off of that. So they're forced to tour to make a living so they can make enough money to make more music and go back in the studio and make another album. So the merch, the ticket sales, that's what's keeping these artists alive. And the last few years they couldn't tour because of COVID. Mm. So we've lost a lot of people over this one. Yeah, Ray, care to elaborate on that one? Tom basically started my answer for me. So, yeah. so here, here's, here's the situation. Tom and I are old enough to remember the recording industry in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And while it wasn't perfect, it would reward people who performed on records, people who wrote songs that were on these records. Now, those two different compensation schemes are very different. If you're a songwriter, then by U.S. law, you can't give away half of what's called your publishing, which is your rights to get money. Mm -hmm. And the most successful, when we're talking about financial success, most successful people in the recording industry are writers. You think of people like Paul McCartney, who's written every other song, right? Dolly Parton. Exactly. And then in the 80s, something happened. In addition to audio and songs and records becoming data, mm -hmm. okay, before digital, before CDs, uh, like, for example, if Tom and I had gotten together when we were 13, I'd, I'd say, hey, Tom, looks like you got the new Rush album. I'm going to come over. I'm going to bring a... Which like a I would have. Right, of course. Which I would have. <laughs> because he has all of them. <laughs> I bring over a cassette and we would sit down and we'd listen to the album while we're recording it. So that's actually kind of a rite of passage. It's something that we can do. When things became digital and songs became files, now Tom would walk over and say, here's a 32 gigabyte hard drive of all my MP3s. Mm -hmm. Copies over in 10 minutes, we didn't even hear a single thing. So there's kind of a depersonalization thing happening when songs become data. Right. Now, that was one of the death knells for the recording industry. Prior to songs being data, they pretty much had a stranglehold over recording artists. And those of us in the, I'll say, late 80s, remember paying $18.99 for an album that had two good songs on it and about 12 that sucked. And the recording industry pretty much had a monopoly on that. 
enter Napster, enter the MP3, and then all hell broke loose. And as Tom has alluded to in, in his answer, uh, it has changed dramatically compensation. And when I say compensation, I'm really talking about justice. I'm talking about these people who work hard, who perform well on records, and are compensated a small amount using the you know, uh, streaming services like Spotify and Pandora. They simply do not compensate uh, uh, record labels and composers the way terrestrial radio, we're talking FM and AM radio would. Um, it's a completely different scheme, and I think it's devalued it enormously. Mm-hmm. Now, we've already had the age-old problem of performers on you know, Motown records in the 60s, where you have uh, combos playing you know, drums and bass. What were some of the names of the people? Oh, oh uh, um, Clive, Clive Silverfield, the, the drummer for James Brown, is the most sampled drummer in history, and he hasn't earned a, set from, a cent from any of those. Right. Or so the state. Yeah. This has been an injustice all this time. You get the particularly in the '90s when there's all these loops being ripped off. I'm sorry that they are being inspired by earlier <laughs> recordings. No one's getting no one's getting paid. As a matter of fact, the first song that I mixed for Ice Cube, which is a song called "Cave Bitch," the reason I was called in to do it was because he used a sample from another record that he didn't want to pay for. Right. And so it cost him less money to pay for me, an engineer, and the studio for me to recall the mix and then just hit cut and mute that one sample. And just by doing that, we're basically saying that groove was really terrific. I love that groove that you had on there, but we're not going to pay the record label because they paid for the recording studio. They paid for duplication. They paid all this stuff, but we're not going to reward them. And that to me is a problem. From a justice standpoint, if you work hard, if you're talented, you put your nose to the grindstone, you hone your craft, I believe you should be rewarded for something like this. And the way the record labels or the recording industry is right now, it's dropping off rather dramatically. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't be very financially successful. Look at Taylor Swift. There's a lot of people doing that sort of thing. I'm talking about other artists that can't rely on the whole image thing. Mm -hmm. There's really no way right now with the models we have with streaming, and you know, I, I subscribe to Apple Pod, to, to Apple Music and I love it. I feel guilty though because I may listen to the same police album, but it's a fraction of the money that they're getting now than they would have 30 years ago when it was playing on the radio. Mm. So on the one hand, technology made music available. I mean, I'll go ahead and say I've got 34,000 MP3s on a hard drive at home, right? So I'm guilty of having taken music without compensating for the recordings. Now, I sleep better at night because as Tom is my witness, Tom and I will go see concerts. We'll go ahead and buy the merch because that really is about the, the most direct way to compensate an artist for their hard work and dedication. Mm-hmm. You buy the overpriced T-shirt because maybe they're paying, they're paying three bucks for the T-shirt. They're charging $27 for it. But the record label is not getting that money. Pandora is not getting that money. Spotify is not getting money. It's them. It is they. It is the artist. And so I just think that the trend right now, and I don't see it changing, is shortchanging a lot of really talented musicians and dedicated artists. And so the way to fight back, really, is to support the artist by seeing them on tour, by overpaying for the T-shirt, by doing those sorts of things, because they will see more of that as a reward. Mm -hmm. It's funny about the sampling and, and not clearing a sample. When someone took a James Brown loop to, to, to use in a song, they are supposed to clear that license with an entity. And 
the songwriter usually is the person who gets part of it and the people who own the recording. So they're the ones, you know, if it's a recording that's 40 years old, they're the ones that are going to be getting the lion's share of the money. Even if they did get paid for that, Clive's 12% of that probably never gets to Clive, even though he was the one who was playing the beat everyone's cutting the vocal to. Mm. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's skewed. It's, and it's, it's only worse now. I see. Well, um, the final thing that I always do is I always let uh, my guests plug anything that they would like, any uh, social media or events coming up that they uh, would like to bring attention to. Uh, you can even uh, plug. I don't know. It's not coming to me right, right <laughs> now. But anything that uh, you would like to bring attention to at the moment, uh, now is your time to do so. Okay. Well, I, I don't have any particular events or recordings or any of that sort of thing to be promoting. Mm -hmm. I'll just underscore what I had just said. Those folks who are listening to a podcast, this one particularly, if there is an artist whose work you adore, you love, either it's a songwriter or a performer, a band, a soloist, it doesn't matter, the most important thing you can do at this point is to make sure when they come to town, go and see them. Of course. Go ahead and... and you know, go ahead and pay uh, for the ticket. When you get there, buy the T-shirt, talk about it, post it on social media, blow them up. I mean, also do buy drinks for the venue because that way the venue makes money or they'll want to bring them back again later. Mm. It is kind of a sad state of affairs that we're working out schemes to circumvent so that we can get these folks compensated. But, you know, a lot of people don't understand how these sorts of things work. Tom and I took a semester of, uh, of music law, essentially, basically about copyright, and we kind of understand how this works. Mm -hmm. And so because of this, we know the most direct channel to compensate an artist for their hard work, dedication, and talent is to go ahead and see them live and to buy the merch. So if there's one thing, a takeaway in terms of you know, promoting a, a future event, it's just you know, follow your band on their social media when they come to town or since we're in Reno, when they come to Sacramento or close enough, make that two hour drive, see them, enjoy them. And it's a way of letting them know you appreciate them for what they're doing. So what Ray said, I double all that, <laughs> double all that. And I actually, and I do, I do have a plug. I, and I rarely do, but I do have something coming out. Uh, if all goes well, what's Black Friday? It's November... 26th or 29th? Mm, uh, I'm always terrible with Yeah, dates. it's the day after Thanksgiving. Yeah. If all goes well, I'll be releasing a single. Oh. Called Battle Scar. And it's going to be a charity release benefiting a couple causes that I'm still trying to pin down, so I really can't divulge who it's benefiting yet. But it's a, a, a song that was originally recorded by Rush and another Canadian supergroup called Max Webster. And uh, I've spent 13 years on this. So big labor of love. Uh, two music videos, a behind-the-scenes documentary, and the single, and the campaign starts on Black Friday. Very nice. All righty. And I did some of the video work on Yes, that. you did. I <laughs> held a camera up while an extraordinarily large pe a group of people showed up at Imirage and started singing beautifully. It was, you know, the thing about Tom is Tom It really is a, a local legend. And... Mm -hmm. The firepower of talent in that room was just breathtaking. It's yeah. basically a who's who of everyone in Reno who is a terrific artist, you know. And it speaks to Tom and his availability to be the, the flame and all these moths are coming to him. Because they know when they work with him, it's really going to be a terrific project. Mm. 
But again, Battlescar is him having his George Bailey moment, which from It's a Wonderful Life means the whole town gathers and supports him. So he says, I want to do this thing. Woo! All these artists show up. And these are all sweet people. And they will all work their butts off. So When all is said and done, there's going to be close to 70 people who worked on this project wow. over the last 13 years. Wow. And you get to see race footage on the behind-the-scenes doc and the lyric video. Mine will be the really shaky camera video. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's something to look forward to regardless. <laughs> and you get to help two good causes if all goes well. Of course. Yeah. Well, thank you, gentlemen. It was very nice to just sit down and talk with you outside of the context of a class for once. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> indeed. Thanks all for right. having us. Of course. Thank you very much, and I hope we pass the audition. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of Elevating Humanity, a podcast of the UNR College of Liberal Arts. Once again, you can find additional episodes of this podcast on Spotify, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts. Consider checking them out and subscribing and giving us a review on our Google Play and Apple Podcasts pages. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or if you're a faculty member or student researcher at the UNR College of Liberal Arts and you're interested in appearing on the show, email our director, Lisa McDonald, at lrmcdonald at unr.edu with the subject line, Elevating Humanity Inquiry. That's lrmcdonald at unr.edu. Thank you again for tuning in.